Well, it's a joy to be able to be here uh, with you, and I feel like <clears throat> I'm not here alone. Well, one, uh, my wife Ashley wanted to be here. Uh, as Alan said, we're great friends with Alan and Kim and Nick and Julie, and uh, I just want to um, echo some of what Alan shared. Those two couples, and this is not hyperbole, are some of the godliest people that my wife and I know, not just in ministry. I'm talking in life, and some of you guys may not yet have had the chance to really see them in ups and downs and all kind of mundane uh, seasons of life we have, and it's been consistent. And so um, so my wife uh, couldn't be here because last night my son got sick, and uh, so she's home uh, with our kids. We have three uh, young kids, and then our church, you might have seen me as I was walking in taking pictures of signs and stuff like that. It's only because when I go back next Sunday, I just want to show our church pictures because uh, we are invested in uh, the growth of the gospel here in Herndon through, through this body right here. I was thinking about Colossians 1 this morning and just thinking about how Paul says, we thank God for you whenever we pray. And he talks about how the gospel is increasing and bearing fruit among them. And uh, me just being here, I, I saw Nick and I, and I saw Alan. I was like, yo, this is like, this is a real thing. This is a church. And uh, so praise God for what he's doing here. And if you're new here, uh, take it from another new guy here. Uh, it's a great, great place to be for you to figure out where you are with God and for you to grow uh, prayerfully in the grace of God. So Psalm 99 is where we're going to be, and we, we had it read this morning, and so we're going to pick it apart. But before we uh, do that, uh, the World Health Organization estimates that there are about six out of ten people in the developing world uh, who are, um, have some type of vision impairment. And that number is actually very similar to here in the States. About six out of 10 people uh, have some type of vision impairment. The difference between here and other places around the world is that in the developing world, those six out of 10 folks have little to no access to any kind of eye care or eyeglasses. And so if you wear glasses or contacts or have worn glasses before or have been around people who wear glasses, you know how much... Uh, having the right glasses, having the right kind of eye care affects your quality of life. So we're talking safety issues. We're talking about education, like literacy, the ability to read. Uh, we're talking about work productivity. And so there's whole organizations that are dedicated to providing free eye exams, free glasses, and that kind of thing. And I was thinking about when I was young, we had a family friend who lived with us and an older lady. And my brothers and I, she had... She had thick, I'm talking like, you know how you go to some neighborhoods, you go to the bank, it's like the bulletproof glass, like that's how her glasses were. And, uh, and so me and my brothers, uh, we used to sneak into her room at night and take her glasses off her nightstand. Uh, and so when she got up, we always knew when she got up because she just freaked out. And if we heard something hit the ground, we knew it was time to rush back in with her glasses. It was pretty cruel. Uh, I realize that now, but it was awesome back then. Uh, <laughs> But now that I have my own glasses, I, I, I definitely understand it. And uh, I was just kind of thinking about that. And the reason I, I bring that up is because I think uh, so many of us are suffering from a diminished quality of life because we have a diminished view of God. We suffer from a diminished quality of life, quality of spiritual life for sure, but life period because we have a distorted or diminished view of God. We don't often, especially in our culture, but even in the church many times, we are not seeing God 
clearly. We're not using the proper lenses to be able to see God for who he really is. And while many of us have been asleep, Satan, our great enemy, has snuck into our homes, in our spiritual life, and in our churches. And he's taken the one thing that we need in order to be able to see God clearly. What is that? It's the word of God. Is the word of God. It is not my own imagination. It is not how I feel in any given season of life. It's not me projecting what I think a great person or great God might be like. No, we know who God is and we know what God is like through the lens of his word. And so before we uh, read this psalm, I just wanted us to think about that. And I want you to just be prayerful asking God, God, would you help me to see you clearly through your word uh, this morning? So Psalm 99 is a call to worship and it's a call to worship God for a very specific reason. And so from hearing it read this morning, uh, you could probably tell what the reason is. It's repeated three times in this one psalm. So in verse three, let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Verse five, it says, exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. And then in verse nine, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is what? The Lord our God is holy. And so just off the top, here's the main point of this Psalm. If you're taking notes, this is the main point of Psalm 99. God is worthy of worship because he is holy. God is worthy of worship because he is holy. So you say, but what does it mean that God is holy? Well, holiness is God's most fundamental attribute. In a sense, it's what defines God as God. You might say God's holiness is God's otherness. The word holy literally just means to be set apart. And so uh, like I have my regular silverware over here and then I put my fine china like over in a little case over here. Bunch of y'all millennials are looking at me like, I can't resonate with that. I have no china. As a matter of fact, we use all plastic goods in my house. All right. So I have my free earbuds that came with the the iPhone over here. And then I have my Beats by Dre in a special case over here, right? They are set apart, right, for a special use. That's, That's how it is when we think about God, that he's set apart. Except, except those aren't really good examples. And the reason is because... Apple earbuds and Beats headphones are still in the same category. But God is not just a better or the best version of anything. He's not the top of the totem pole. He made the totem pole. And so when we talk about the holiness of God, what we're talking about is the fact that God is categorically different from all that he has made. He's in a class by himself. So he's set apart from everything he's made and he's set apart from sin. God is absolutely perfect. There is no sin or impurity in him. And because he's so unique, there's no one like him. And because he's perfect, there's no sin in him. That makes him infinitely more valuable and more precious and more praiseworthy than anything else in the world. And so when you, when you hear God is holy or when we sing God is holy, just think to yourself, there's no one like God. That's what it means to say, God, you are holy. It's to say, God, there is no one like you. And so let me pause for a second. Let me ask you, do you really believe that? Not have you believed it at one point in your life today? Do you really believe that there is no one like God? And don't answer it too quickly or just intellectually, 
not just circling the right answer on the religious test. Do you really live? Do I really live with an awareness that there is no one like God, that God is holy? When you're tempted to sin and you have a choice to make, when you hear the way people talk about Jesus, who we believe is God who's come in the flesh. When you come here to church, when you're getting ready to sing and worship, are you living in an awareness that God is holy? How does God's holiness affect the way you live? You say, so, okay, wait a minute. So how do, I, how do I know? How do I know if I'm living in that awareness? How do I know if I'm seeing God and sensing God accurately in his holiness? Well, Psalm 99 gives us kind of three ways. You can use this as kind of a diagnostic tool to see where is the holiness of God? How, how, how clear is it in, in your life? How is it affecting you? Number one, if we don't really see the holiness of God, then, then we lose our awe of God. You, you know you're not quite seeing God as for, for who he really is if you've lost the awe of God in your life. You know, believe it or not, awe is a field of scientific research. And so science, uh, psycholo- um, psychologists define awe as, listen to this, as the feeling of being in the presence of something so vast that we struggle to comprehend it. That's not my definition. That's psychologists. So it's, it's the feeling of being in the presence of something so vast that we struggle to comprehend it. We've all felt it before. You go to the Grand Canyon, you stand, even just go to Great Falls and you stand right there where you see kind of the, 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 the waterfall happening there and the rapids there and you just, you just feel this overwhelming sense of something that is, that is so grand and beautiful and profound. It could be childbirth. Some of us have experienced it and some of us have observed it. Uh, and it is something that I struggle to comprehend. I am not built for that. And I, my wife is a hero. Like she is the real MVP in our relationship. Uh, it is amazing. And so being in the presence of something that is so vast, you struggle to comprehend it. And psychologists say you can make the case that our culture today is all deprived. That's a quote. Uh, One researcher said, news stories and social media posts inundate us every day with tips for greater happiness, tips for health and general well-being. Uh, Then they say, but who has time to fit those things into our already packed schedules? And then one writer says this, my research has led me to believe that one simple prescription can have transformative effects. Here's the prescription. Look for more daily experiences of all. Look up from your phone, get out of the weeds of like your cubicle and what's happening there and look for more daily experiences of all. And psychologically, they say it has profound effects on on your life. And isn't it true? Isn't it true that our spiritual lives and even our ministry efforts are often inundated with tips for greater happiness, tips for health, tips for greater well-being? And and listen to this, like when I I think about this, the Christian life is so much more robust than just tips for how to live a better life. What we have in God's word is an invitation to live a life that is filled with awe. And you see it right here in the text. Look at this majestic description of God. The Psalm opens with the Lord reigns. This is a repeated theme in this section of the book of Psalms. 
This statement is fundamentally and universally true. He's actively ruling over and presiding over everything right now. Everything in heaven, everything in the universe, everything on earth, everything in your life. The Lord reigns. God is the one who is in control, which means that he has the power to use anything and everything, even the bad things for his good purposes. Listen, God is not sitting up in heaven right now anxious. Like world history is not a nail biter to God. He's not sitting on the edges of his seat, wondering and worrying about how it's all going to work out. He's not anxious. He is in control. This majestic picture of him. And in fact, we get this picture of God's presence in the temple. All these temple references in Psalm 99, a reference to Zion, which is the mountain in Jerusalem where the temple was located. And then in verse two, it says he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. That's designed to to, to give you a picture, to to bring an image to your mind of the holiness and the the power of God. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. You want to see a a description of the cherubim? You can read Ezekiel 10. I promised uh, Alan I wouldn't preach for an hour, so just read that on your own time, Ezekiel chapter 10. But let me just explain it to you. So uh, um, God's people, when they would worship, they would come to the temple or the tabernacle and like in the innermost part, so you had kind of the outer court, the inner court, but in the innermost part of the temple of God, you had a room called the Holy of Holies. And this was the most sacred part of uh, the temple. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God. You had the law of Moses that was in the Ark of the Covenant. It was almost like, think of like a trunk almost. Uh, and then it had this, this kind of, um, uh, 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 these, these angels, these uh, creatures, angelic creatures with these golden wings that draped over uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And this picture of God seated on top of this um, Ark of the Covenant, seated on top of the wings of these angelic uh, creatures, it symbolized the fact that his presence, he was present to rule over his people. That's kind of what it symbolized there. But it also symbolized the fact that he was reigning from the throne room of heaven. And that's why the temple and even the whole earth is referred to as God's footstool. And so this God that we see pictured seated on his throne is described in verse two as great and exalted. Verse three as great and awesome. And the psalmist is calling all of creation, including us in this room, to recognize how great God is. Verse one, it says, let the peoples tremble. Let the earth quake. Verse three, it says, let them praise your great an awesome name. In other words, God's holiness demands a response from everyone and everything that he has made. This is exactly what we see happening in Isaiah chapter six. And so you may be familiar with with this verse, a super popular verse. You may have heard parts of it, but listen to this vision that Isaiah gets in Isaiah chapter six. He says, I saw the Lord seated, uh, sitting upon a throne. Get this picture in your mind, high and lifted up, And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. They're similar to cherubim. Um, And listen to the description. Each had six wings. With two, these creatures covered their face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. So this amazing picture of these uh, massive creatures. And this is not like little cute baby angels with a diaper on, like floating around. Okay, these are massive, scary, 
uh, fierce creatures. And look at what they're doing in verse three. What are they yelling? It says, and one called to another and said, it's a call and response. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Most scholars say the picture here is one group of these uh, angelic creatures yelling, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And another group responding, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now there's so much in there that I don't have time to unpack, but here's what I want to get you to see. If these, like, just think for a second, if this roof peeled open right now and these massive screeching creatures swoop down into this room, let me just tell you, I, y'all do what you want. Alan's the pastor here. Service is over for me. I'm gone. Like, all of us, like, their presence in this room would command a response immediately. Every single one of us would, would cover our face because of their claws. We would lay on the ground and try to hide. Like maybe you would if you hide behind somebody else uh, or we would run out of this room. Like if those creatures came into this room right now, they would command a response. But when they are in the presence of God, they are the ones hiding themselves. When they are in the presence of God, they are the one bowing and humbling themselves before the holiness of almighty God. And how much more then should we, how much more than should we human beings respond to God with that kind of awe and that kind of reverence? When we gather every weekend, when we sing and celebrate, when we live our daily lives, the holiness of God demands that we look at God And we respond with awe. And listen, we can live this way when we open God's word and we don't just read God's word for tips for how to live a better life. We don't just read God's word to get rules for how we're supposed to live the Christian life, but we open God's word because this is how God has revealed himself to us in all of his glory from creation all the way through the consummation. God has revealed himself as the holy God who is seated on the throne, who is beautiful and valuable and praiseworthy, and that evokes out of us a sense of awe in our life. We were made to live in awe of God. And so listen, if right now in your relationship with God, you say, I, I'm, I don't have that sense of awe, then it might be because you've lost sight of just how holy God is, just how holy he is. Number two, when we lose sight of the holiness of God, we lose our fear. You want to know if you've lost sight of the holiness of God? Are you appropriately fearing the Lord in your life? It says here in Psalm 99 that the Lord reigns, Now look at how he reigns. Verse four, it says the king in his might, in his power, he loves justice. And in one sense, this is really good news. This has caused us to worship and trust God with our whole hearts. You've probably heard the popular quote before, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've heard that. I'd modify that statement a bit, but it's It's a real fear, right? Just think about it. Earthly rulers are vulnerable to corruption. And so if they have power, especially like in a dictatorship or something like that, if they have power and they're prone to corruption, that should cause a little bit of fear in us. But earthly earthly rulers, even if you have a good ruler or a good judge or a good leader, earthly rulers are also vulnerable to mistakes. So they may not be corrupt, but there's still a sense of fear because they might get it wrong. We, we see it happen all the time, but this is not true of God's power and authority. There is no corruption in God. So his leadership will always be trustworthy and God is never lacking any necessary information. 
He sees everything perfectly as it really is. And so his judgments will always be right. And we can find great comfort and confidence in that. God loves justice. He is just. And he expressed that in the laws he gave his people to abide by in the Old Testament. That's what it means here when it says you, God, have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. When we think about injustice, one way to think about injustice is just sin imposed through power. That's what injustice is. It's me taking sin and then imposing it on you through power. I'm the one that has the power. So because of my greed, my selfishness, my lust, whatever the case may be, I impose my sin on you through power. And we see throughout scripture that God hates that. He deplores it. And so he put laws in place to protect the most vulnerable in Jewish society, orphans, widows, refugees, the poor. He established laws against robbery and murder and bribery and false charges and predatory loans and discriminatory policies. This is all stuff you see right here in the scriptures. And so the way God governed his people was designed to show the nations how good and holy and just his leadership is. The way they practice justice among them as the people of God was designed to reveal the justice and mercy and compassion and love and equity of God to the nations surrounding them. And so when you think about the injustice in this world, you think about 20, about 21 million uh, victims of human trafficking globally. You think about four and a half million people trapped in forced sexual exploitation globally, many of them children. And so often that industry is what fuels the pornography that many people consume. You think about the number of babies in just in our country, not even talking about around the world that are aborted every single day. You think about in my county where I pastor, where it's legal to abort a child even in the ninth month of pregnancy. When you think about that reality, when you think about the history in our country and, and, and even the lingering effects of that kind of racism and oppression based on skin color in our country, you think about physical and sexual abuse, people who are powerless to stop it and too afraid to try. You think about the Me Too movement. You think about all of these women that are coming out and saying, in my particular industry, either I was directly physically abused or through coercion or through intimidation, even, even though it was consent, it was coerced consent, I was taken advantage of. You think about that chorus that's rising right now. You think about all that injustice in the world and you think about the fact that we feel righteous indignation when we see injustice. And you imagine to yourself what God feels when he's the one that created people in his image. And he is the one, we see a little slice of the injustice that happens in our world. And he at all times sees all of the injustice that has happened all throughout history and is happening, happening everywhere at the same time. He sees all of it. He absorbs all of it. He feels the pain of all of it. And this is why as you read about people who have suffered under oppression throughout history, whether it's people in the persecuted church or if you read about, you know, Jews in the Holocaust, you read about in, in their memoirs, the idea of a judgment day is good news to them. 
Like we struggle with it in Western uh, society and in America because honestly, we struggle a lot of times to really grapple with the depth of sin. But when people have experienced outrageous levels of oppression, when they looked evil so closely in the face, the idea of a just God and the idea of a judgment day is good news. And when I think about that, I think about the question that Fannie Lou Hamer asked the man who abused her. Fannie Lou Hamer, African-American woman, she was a Christian and a civil rights activist. She was wrongly arrested in Mississippi and she was brutally beaten uh, in the booking room by police when she uh, uh, was being booked into jail. And then while she was there, uh, she tells the story and I encourage you to find her transcript. And I remember just reading through her transcript that she, that she, where she gave testimony. It was televised across the country. And uh, she tells the story about how she could hear the other women, civil rights activists, the other women being abused in the cells around her. She could hear their screams. And she says, so one day uh, the officers showed up to her cell and they took her out of her cell, took her to an, another room and they made two other male inmates uh, physically and sexually abuse her. Just brutally, just be her. You, you just read it and your heart just breaks. And, and here's what got me. So later she's interacting with one of the officers that kind of presided over that. And she looks at him and she asks him this question. She said, do you people ever think or wonder how you'll feel when the time comes you'll have to meet God? She said, do you ever, does it ever cross your mind how you're going to feel that day when it's your time to meet God. You see, this is a woman who had confidence in the God of the Bible that we read about here in Psalm 99. This God who loves justice and he executes that justice in his righteousness. You know, when we read the Bible, we get the clear picture that the Lord who reigns from heaven is not indifferent to injustice on earth. Praise God. We worship a God who loves justice and actively opposes injustice. And he's not apathetic or morally neutral when people are victimized and abused and defrauded and taken advantage of. No, he is reigning over it all. And in his timing, he will bring justice. He will bring justice. And let me say right here, he might bring, he's definitely going to bring justice on that day when Jesus returns, not in humility as he did in his first coming, but in all power and authority for sure. But he also might execute that justice through means that we have here on earth. So let me just say for a second, if you've been abused, and, and I just, every time I preach on this topic, I feel like I have to say this where I, where, when I go to churches. If you are being abused right now, if you think you are and you're not quite sure, you need to talk to somebody. And you might need to call the police because it just might be that God's way of executing his justice, it might come through the criminal justice system. And so don't be silent. Don't be silent in that. And let me also say, because we know the statistics, that if you're here and you're in this room and you're the one who is abusing someone or you have then I want to invite you in view of the holiness of God and this just God that we're talking about right here, the one that is looking into your soul right now. I want to, I want to invite you. I want to plead with you to repent. Like whatever that means, I want to invite you to repent and escape the judgment of God. Find the mercy of God. Accept whatever natural consequences there are so that you don't have to put yourself in a position where you might have to face the eternal consequences of that. This is a God of justice that we worship in all of his holiness. 
But listen, if we're, if we're not careful, we, we can begin to think that God is not just as serious about our own sin. It was a little bit of an awkward moment, me addressing abusers, and some of us may think, okay, I'm good. But no, 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 no. No, God is consistent in his justice. A lot of times we, we begin to think that God is not just as serious about our own sin. Let's ask the question to ourselves. Do I ever think or wonder how I'll feel that when that time comes that I'll have to meet God? You know, I say it all the time. Everybody loves to talk about God's justice until it's directed at their own sin. So we have to think about that. Is it possible that our sin is more serious than we perceive it to be? Is it possible that God is not as tolerant as we think he is? Is it possible that we inhale God's oxygen and we eat from God's creation and we buy with God's provision and we enjoy relationships with people made in God's image? And in all of that, is it possible that we have mistaken God's kindness for some kind of happy-go-lucky tolerance? Is it possible that he's much more serious about our sin than we think he is, that he's holier than we think he is? God's justice is consistent. And you notice that right here in the text. Not only does God love justice, but it says he executed justice and righteousness where? In Jacob. That's just another way of referring to God's people. He didn't just execute his justice on behalf of his people. He, when they lost sight of his holiness and they refused to repent, he executed his justice, his discipline against his people. That's why in verse 8 it says not only was he a forgiver of, of, of their sin, but he was an avenger of their wrongdoings. God brought his justice in the form of discipline to his own people. And so even as Christians who have been saved from God's eternal punishment, we need to remember that God promises he promises to discipline his children because he loves us too much to not continue to conform us to his image, to not continue to purify us of that sin that we cling to. You see this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. It says, as he who called you, Christian, is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. And so listen, in light of the holiness of God, if you're holding on to sin in your life, I just want to encourage you. It doesn't matter if it's big or small. Repent. Turn away from that sin. It's just, it's not worth it. It is not worth it. It's not worth it. Now, that would, it would, this would be really depressing if this is where the sermon ends, and it's not. Praise the Lord. This is where we get to celebrate, right? Because, listen, we don't only lose a sense of awe or fear if we lose sight of the holiness of God, but if you lose sight of the holiness of God, we also lose our gratitude. If you struggle with gratitude toward God, it might be because you're struggling to see God's goodness, but it might also be because you're not quite comprehending God's holiness, let me explain to you what I mean. Look at verses six through nine. When you first read the psalm, this section almost seems like it doesn't fit. It almost seems like a kind of random historical ta tangent, right? But against the backdrop of God's holiness, we see this amazing description of God's mercy toward his people. So Moses, Aaron, and Samuel were all leaders in ancient Israel and they, all, they had different roles. So, so if you have read through the Bible, if you've heard the kind of stories of the great patriarchs of Scripture, Moses was the great deliverer that God used to free his Jews from slavery in Egypt. We all know, let my people go, right? And God revealed his law to the people of Israel through Moses. 
And so Moses was a priest, uh, was not a priest in the strict sense of the word, but he was in the sense that, uh, that he, he was a mediator uh, f- f- uh, on behalf of God's people. And then Aaron was Moses' assistant. He eventually became Israel's first high priest. And then Samuel was a prominent judge and prophet in Israel. He was the one who anointed King Saul and then later King David. And so why, why is the psalmist mentioning these guys? Because he's been talking about this, these beautiful, amazing descriptions of God. Why does he randomly throw in these historical figures? And it's because of this. All of these men were imperfect sinners. And I don't have time to get into the details of their life, but just read about them in the Old Testament, and you'll see that they all failed God in major ways. And they suffered the consequences, the natural consequences for it. And yet, look at verse 6. It says, they call to the Lord, and listen, this should like blow your mind. They called to the holy God that we've been reading about, the ones seated on the throne in holiness, and he's just. They called to him, and he answered them. He answered them. And it blows my mind when I think, what is man that you are mindful of him? God, how are you? Number one, there's so much stuff going on in the world. How do you even have time to, to listen to me. But number two, like you are holy and I am not. Why would you listen to me? Much less actually respond to what I have to say. But listen, that's not even the best of it. Because what about the rest of God's people? What about the, these are the leaders that, that call out to God and God answers them. But what about the rest of God's people? In the wilderness, when God manifested his presence on Mount Sinai, the people were afraid and they didn't dare go up the mountain. M- Moses did that. But they didn't go up the mountain. The only person that can go into the presence of God was the one whom God himself appointed to represent his people. In the Jerusalem temple, only one person could go into the Holy of Holies, the high priest. And he could only do that one time a year. And the high priest had to take coal and incense into the Holy of Holies, right? Had to, had to make sure you follow all of these particular rules and regulations in order to go in. You couldn't just kind of go in casually, just chilling. And you had to have a blood sacrifice on your hands or else you would die. I mean, it was, it was crazy. The people of God could not just go up the mountain in the presence of God. They could not just walk into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. And so even though all of these men, Moses, Aaron, even though they all had different jobs, so to speak, they and other people like them served one main role in Israel's history. Here's their main role. They served as mediators between God and his holiness and God's people in their sinfulness. They served as mediators between God in his holiness and God's people in their sinfulness. And there were so many times, different points throughout Israel's history where God's people broke their covenant. They rejected God, they pursued sin. And in his justice, God had every reason to pour out his wrath and cast them away forever. But listen, this is the story of the Bible. In God's mercy, he kept appointing mediators. He just kept leaving the door open and providing a way for his people to be rescued and restored, forgiven, as it says in verse 8. And these men were authorized to stand in the gap for God's people, and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. All of us need an appointed mediator in order to have access to God. Every single one of us. No one can be forgiven. No one can come into the presence of God except through the mediator that God has appointed. And that's the truth revealed to us in the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that we thoroughly sinful people can have forgiveness and eternal access to the perfectly holy God who reigns on the throne. But only through the mediator he has appointed. And that's not Moses. 
It's not Aaron. It's not Samuel. It's not King David. It's not St. Peter. It's not St. Paul. It's not Mary. It's not a priest. It's not Oprah, even though she's still really killing the game right now. Like there is no other mediator. And listen, we're certainly not qualified to be our own mediators. First Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Listen, Jesus intervened for us on the cross and now he intercedes for us in heaven. And Jesus, unlike any other leader, Jesus is perfect, perfect. He has never sinned. He doesn't have to keep making sacrifices over and over again. He made the once and for all sacrifice when he offered his blood um, on the cross and was raised from the grave to show that his sacrifice cleared the bank. And all of us get to now participate in the riches of his glory and his grace. And so God is reigning on his throne. He reigns with perfect justice. We deserve his eternal punishment and we have not done and we cannot do anything to earn his forgiveness. But just like he did for his people in the Old Testament, through his mediators in the sacrificial system, he's done it for us through the blood of Jesus. He has provided a way. He's provided a way. So listen, the reason I said if you lose sight of the holiness of God, you lose gratitude is because so often we take the goodness of God for granted. And we, if we're not careful, can begin to believe that because we've made a little more progress than, than, than we did last year, because it's, what's, I don't even know today's day, January 28th, 28th, because we're 28 days consistent in our Bible reading plan, uh, because, because we come to church on Sunday, we can begin to think that we deserve all of these blessings from God. And if that's how you feel, you'll never live a life full of gratitude because you'll, none of us have ever, when you, when you get that direct deposit uh, paycheck, you've never gone into your boss's office and just given them a hug and been like, let's look them in the eyes and say, I just want to thank you. No, because they're paying you to do a job. Like you're getting what you deserve. You're getting what you deserve. But I bet you you're filled with gratitude if that bonus comes in. If for no other reason they just say, hey, we had a surplus this year and we just want to hook all y'all up with a couple thousand dollars, you would be super excited. Listen, that's the grace of God in our life. And it's only when you see the holiness of God and you're filled with awe in light of that and you understand his justice, that he cares about justice in the world, but he also cares about executing justice in your life against your sin. It's only when you understand that in the context of his holiness that you see his mercy and you receive it with gratitude, with gratitude. And so listen, if we lose sight of the holiness of God, we lose our sense of awe. We lose our sense of fear. We lose our gratitude. But, but, and this is where I'm gonna close. But when we truly see and embrace the holiness of God, our lives and our, and our hearts and our churches will be filled with awe. Your life will be filled with awe. When you think about God and you read about God and you sing about God and you experience the presence of God, we will have an appropriate fear that drives us away from sin and motivates us to obedience. And we will be overwhelmed with joy and gratitude for the mercy that God has shown us. And so I want to pray for us. Before I do that, let me just ask you, let me give you a second just to just pray silently for a minute. Have you lost your sense of awe? in your walk with the Lord? Has this Christian thing just become kind of mundane, going through the motions? Have you lost a sense of awe? 
Have you lost your fear of sin? Have you lost your fear of sin and injustice? Have you lost your sense of gratitude? If you have, I want you to just take a minute and just tell God, like, tell him to help you truly grasp how holy he is. Just ask him, say, Lord, Lord, I want to be more aware of your holiness today. I want to be more aware of your holiness this week. I want to be more aware of your holiness in my life. Call to him. He'll answer you. Take a minute with the Lord, and then I'll pray for us. Father, we, we come to you, Lord, with uh, this contrite hearts, and we want to tremble at your word, God. We want to we see you. We want to see you as you have revealed yourself to us, Lord. We don't want to see you as a figment of our imagination. We don't want to see you as some type of kind of cultural creation and mythology, Lord. We want to see you as you have revealed yourself to us in your word and preeminently in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God. And so, Lord, would you forgive us for the ways, God, that we lose sight of your holiness, Lord, and would you help us to be more aware of it today, right now? Would you help us to be more aware of your holiness, Lord? And would you fill us with the appropriate response? We love you, Father, because you first loved us, and that is amazing. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.